0: Hello, and welcome to another episode of the 10th and L podcast brought to you by True North Church in Anchorage, Alaska. My name is Philip Coleman, and I am coming to you solo again today. Uh, Last week, if you missed the podcast, we had uh, Ian Johannes, one of our lay elders, on with me for episode number 18. Ian and I discussed the diaconate, or the office of deacons, one of the two offices of the local church as prescribed by the New Testament. We dug a little bit into Acts chapter 6. We worked through some of the requirements of a deacon in uh, First Timothy uh, chapter 3. We discussed together a book by Matt Smethurst called Deacons, uh, which we've used as a starting point for some discussions about the role of deacon in the life of the church at True North, and we were able to work through some of the benefits that we see to both offices of the local church, deacon and elder, being robust, working together, and being as healthy as possible. Today I'm going to speak with you, uh, as I said, solo, uh, and we're going to discuss the most recent sermon series that we went through as a church. We called our series Welcome Home. We only had enough time because we're still trying to work through the book of Genesis uh, before about the end of the first quarter of 2022. We only had enough time to, to camp out on the concept of Welcome Home for three weeks, and so we looked at three specific topics across those three weeks. We looked at hospitality uh, or eating and drinking in the kingdom of God. We looked at generosity which we uh, talked about in the way of giving without getting, giving without reciprocity in the kingdom of God. And then uh, we wrapped up the series dealing with stewardship, cultivating life in each other, also in the kingdom of God. And so if I can define those terms for you just for a moment today, Uh, and then I want to dig into each of those three topics. I really want to spend the majority of our time, probably the last 20 minutes, dealing with the topic of stewardship. This seemed to be the message in the series uh, that maybe was the most challenging to our members. I received some really great feedback. I love to hear from our members, uh, our congregation, regarding the preaching that happens, and love when folks see things differently than me or maybe understand a scripture to be meaning something that uh, that doesn't quite line up exactly with the way that I may have preached it. I appreciate the chance to dig into that deeper. Certainly, I'm not perfect. I try to do my best to be uh, absolutely above reproach, but also uh, not unapproachable. And so, I want to just address a couple of the questions I got regarding the most recent sermon as we we draw our time to an end together today. First of all, let's talk about hospitality. Um, We defined hospitality as showing mercy to our neighbors by sharing our domestic rhythms. When you and I think of hospitality, we probably consider hospitality to be something that happens around a table regarding food. I think that's still a central concept in modern hospitality. However, many of our families don't prioritize a family meal in the evening this has been true really since the nuclear family became culturally popular uh, in the 50s i think that's when um, the idea of dinner together as a family probably cooked and prepared by mom served to a brother and a sister and then a dad who got home from work uh, within the last hour or so uh, it became a typical idea started to show up in tv shows and movies and books things like that i don't think there's anything wrong necessarily with the idea of eating together I probably do have some opinions about uh, the family just expecting mom to have a multi-course dinner done every night of the week. I don't know that that's necessarily healthy unless she feels that that's her call and that's where she wants to be. But hospitality in that setting is a little bit different than it probably is in 2021. Um, A more old school or traditional or nuclear idea of hospitality probably involves bringing a person to the dinner table with your family, inviting their family, assuming they are also a nuclear family. Maybe this is your neighbors or a coworker. Uh, and welcoming them into something that's a typical part of the rhythm of your lives in your home. However, today, for those of us who don't necessarily have the schedule or, um, you know, I know a lot, especially at True North, we have a lot of shift workers. We have quite a few who are in the military where uh, one of the spouses is away for great periods of time. I think a broader definition that deals with domestic rhythms in general is probably a little more helpful. And so that's that's the reason why we defined it the way that we did. Thinking through what those domestic rhythms are, um, I I think that eating is still a helpful starting place. So even if your family doesn't typically practice family dinner together, if you do typically eat together at some point, even if it's on the weekend, maybe there's a Saturday lunch that's become a little bit of a tradition for your family, or a Sunday lunch after church, uh, after the gathering in the morning, those can be great places to start. Uh, It's possible for your family there's a day of the week where you go grocery shopping together. Now, you might think that's chaos, and you don't want to invite anybody into that. But just thinking through what our rhythms are. What do we do every week? Do we always have playtime together after school? Do we always go to the grocery one day a week? Is there a practice or an event that one sibling has to go to, and the rest of the kids just go along and either read or watch a movie or play games or something like that? And is there room in one of those settings to bring somebody with you and just add them to the mix? Don't put the pressure on them of having to rise to the occasion, give them the opportunity to just follow your lead and somewhat become a part of your family. I think that's one of the objectives of hospitality is to move people who are strangers into a neighbor context, into a neighbor category, and then a person who you may already have a neighborly, uh, excuse me, relationship with, uh, helping them come into a place where they maybe feel like or function like uh, family. I think that's really helpful. Um, Regarding the sermon itself, when we worked through this, we looked at two specific instances from the book of Luke that somewhat parallel each other. Both of them are meals involving Jesus and somebody else. Uh, We looked first at uh, the book of Luke, uh, the story of Zacchaeus, which begins in Luke chapter 19, relatively close to the end of Jesus' ministry. Zacchaeus is a tax collector, he's um, culturally an outcast, he's marginalized, he hasn't really done anything to earn anybody's favor. And Jesus seems to look past all of that to the man himself, and he prioritizes Zacchaeus. He expects that Zacchaeus will be happy to meet him, and he is. Zacchaeus comes down to the tree and says, yes, you can dine with me, and they eat together in Zacchaeus' house, and then his life has changed. But then we went back 12 chapters to Luke chapter 7, and we saw Jesus interact with, uh, at another meal, a group of people who, uh, though they were... Uh, Jewish, like Zacchaeus was, they were hyper religious and extremely serious about the law, whereas Zacchaeus' reputation was more so that he was a cheat, that he used the law for his own gain. The Pharisees, the group that's present in Luke chapter 7 in the second story that we looked at, they also somewhat manipulated the law to their own end, but they would have never been comfortable admitting that. I think Zacchaeus at least knew that he was a crook, and he was pretty comfortable with that because of the benefit that it brought to his life. Looking at Luke chapter 7, uh, reading all the way through, Uh, to about verse 50, Jesus interacts with a woman who comes famously to visit him while he's eating dinner at the Pharisee's house. The Pharisee does not offer to wash Jesus' feet or his hands before the meal. He doesn't greet Jesus with a kiss. He isn't really welcoming. He doesn't do a very good job with hospitality. But the woman who wasn't invited comes into the house and begins to act as if she is the host without ever addressing the Pharisee or explaining to him what she's there to do. She simply comes to Jesus and, and, and demonstrates with her actions her desire to serve him and to love him. And Jesus seems to communicate to her that she has played the role of host where the Pharisee has failed him, uh, that she has decided by washing his feet, by welcoming Jesus, by loving him, to prioritize him by way of hospitality. And her life is transformed in the same way that Zykeia says. So this was a turning point, I think, for us. I hope for those of you who were present, uh, that was back at the beginning of September that we dealt with this idea, that hospitality is not a forerunner to evangelism. I think we tend to think of hospitality as... Just maybe throwing a good dinner party, or being um, open-minded about other people's circumstances, or uh, being the kind of person who's willing to drop a dollar in the Salvation Army um, bucket at Christmas time—maybe not. Maybe I'm selling you short if you're listening, but I can tell you from my own experience in the church, I've not seen a lot of people prioritize hospitality. You rarely, if ever, see any kind of class about how to do hospitality well, how to be hospitable, how to open your home and your the domestic part of your life. So the point that I wanted to make is that hospitality is not a forerunner to evangelism. It's not a method, it's not a way to get a person to take us seriously so that later we can share the gospel. Hospitality is evangelism. It's a sharing of the life that we have with Jesus. If Jesus has welcomed us into his family, if he has welcomed us into all of his, you could say it this way, domestic rhythms, the rhythms of his life, then what we're extending to other people is an extension of his kingdom. It's an extension of what he's given to us. So he teaches us how to follow him, and then we say to other people, I'm living this good life with Jesus, and I want you to live it too. So we teach them about him. But that happens by way of extension of our own lives. It's very hard to bring a person into Jesus' kingdom under his rule, introduce him into their life without being willing to be a friend along the way. Um, I heard a person say, Once It might have been a Keith Green song. Good grief. I may be throwing it back to my childhood. Most of you guys probably don't even know who Keith Green is. Look him up sometime. Um, I think it was somebody wrote a song. I want to say it was Keith Green where he said, before you tell people Jesus loves you, make sure that you love them first. And that's been helpful to me in my life uh, in dealing with people who have needs that I don't have or who have circumstances that I don't understand. Um, sometimes we want to quickly connect a person to the concept of Jesus, and I'm not saying that he doesn't love people if we don't love them first. I don't believe that. You've probably heard the wrongly attributed quote to St. Francis of Assisi where he says—or he didn't say it, but people say he said, uh, share the gospel and when necessary, use words. That's a made-up thing. It's silly. If you read Francis of Assisi's writing, he was very serious about explicit gospel uh, connections in people's lives, t- give, attributing to Jesus what is Jesus, is saying to other people, I'm only whole because of Jesus, I'm only here because of Jesus, I'm only able to help you because of Jesus. But I think sometimes uh, we want for, I don't know, our, our, it's like love in absentia, I guess. I don't know how else to say it. We, we talk about love as a concept without ever feeling obligated to demonstrate love. And we know the Apostle Paul says, that if he does all of these things, religious things, good things, helpful things, but he does them without love, then it's unhelpful in the long run. It's actually not good. We also know that those who don't fear God and don't love God cannot please God. And so uh, I think our love for Jesus is supposed to inspire us. I'm not saying, I shouldn't say I think that. I know it. Our love for Jesus is, is meant to command obedience from those of us who call him Lord to be willing to march into the life of another person. And though we cannot control our emotions... Maybe you would say love is a feeling. I think in some ways it can be. It's also a whole set of actions and choices as well. It's a very complex idea. I think that we choose to demonstrate love actions toward a person, trusting that God will not allow those things to be void in our life or theirs. And that eventually, and I believe this, when you show something value long enough, it becomes valuable to you. This is why idolatry is so dangerous because we can't just dabble in something. We can't play games with anything in our lives. The things that we prioritize, the things we give our attention to, what we're focused on, those things become more and more important to us. We begin then to depend on them, to rely on them. We need something back in return because of the investment that we've made. And I think that can be a person. I'm not saying you need to idolize a person, but I think that same tendency of your heart to want to love another person and to find a way to do that You can trust that Jesus is going to take advantage of that. He wired you. He designed you. He made you the way that you are. If he sends you into the life of another person, you can trust that unless that person is just an absolute... uh, This was a nice way to say this. Um, Unless that person has chosen to isolate themselves or maybe has been isolated by way of their personality or choices, which is maybe possible, uh, there's probably a relationship for you in there somewhere. Uh, And so I would just encourage you to consider that. Um, I think that... Uh, if I can just say a couple quick words here regarding uh, what it means to be invited into God's kingdom, uh, and then we'll move into our second concept, generosity, because we want to make sure we're, I'm paying attention to our time today. Um, I think that um, if hospitality is showing mercy to our neighbors, if it really is that, by, by way of sharing our domestic rhythms, opening our lives, opening our homes, not just Setting up a meeting with somebody, but saying to them, "Look, here's where I'll be and what time I'll be there. Come with me." Um, For instance, in my own life, there's a young man who aspires someday to be in ministry full time, and you know, we for a while we're meeting for lunch and we're reading books together and things like that. That's all good, but there's been a new depth to our relationship, and I think it's increased my ability to help him and his ability to just pick up things from my life and to be more of a friend than just a student. For him to come along with me, we work out together in the mornings now. That's a thing I was already doing. I don't like to work out in the mornings. I made that adjustment when the school year got here Um, after I very publicly told everybody on the podcast over the summer that I would never do that. Uh, God humbled me and gave me a challenging schedule, and so now I go to the gym at 6 a.m. four days a week. On a good week, and he joins me. And uh, it's been cool because I've been able to share that rhythm with him. And the conversations that we have are so much better than if we were just meeting for an hour a week and having to plan what we were going to talk about and the questions that we we're going to go over and a chapter of a book to discuss. We still do some of that stuff. Sometimes we'll come with a question, or I'll have had a, an interesting interaction with somebody in ministry, and I'll be able to kind of hypothetically throw those circumstances at him to see how he would handle it and begin jogging his mind a little bit about what does the Bible say about these things and how does God prepare those of us who are. Um, shepherds over the flock to be able to provide good and right care. Um, but it's been interesting to, to share those rhythms instead of just preparing a formal uh, meeting. I don't think there's not room in God's kingdom or God's economy for Bible studies and things that are more formalized, uh, but I think hospitality is an invitation to share the overlap of our lives. Um, and, and when we do that, I think we get into step with what Jesus said in Mark 1.15. When he comes teaching and preaching the gospel, eating and drinking... His whole gospel message at the beginning is that the kingdom of God has come near. And that is such a simple yet also incredibly deep and in some ways complicated concept that I think that when we share the rhythms of our life, we have an opportunity to not just tell, but also to show. I want to move now into the second topic in our three-part series, generosity. We won't be here very long. Um, I didn't get a lot of questions about this one. I think this one's generally uh, pretty open uh, and easy to understand, but we define generosity as participating in the future of another person by giving to them without reciprocity. Reciprocity, you can think of the word reciprocal, without receiving. Giving without getting is the concept here. Um, And we talked about uh, some of the state of the world, dealing with why generosity is so important, because the people around us are living in secularism, and they are eating the fruit of their own secularism. They are depressed, they are upset, they live without meaning— Uh, We talked about late modern secularism, which finds its roots in Darwinian humanism. Um, I quoted Nietzsche, one of my favorite. It's a horrifying concept, but it's just such a great, plain, bold way to define the way the world really works. Uh, Nietzsche said, inside a Darwinian worldview, the only two rational decisions are moral depravity and suicide. And that's not a fun or bright or encouraging concept. It's horrifying, but it's the truth. It's the truth. If we really are only about our own survival and the advancement of our own kingdoms, then we should either do whatever it takes, regardless of moral standards, who cares? If it's about building our own kingdom, then we decide what's right for us. And if that's really what we're going to do, if we really are as relativistic as we all say we are, if our socialism in concept has leached down into our understanding of self enough that we no longer are comfortable telling anybody around us that they're wrong, then we should be morally depraved. And if we're not strong enough to be morally depraved, then logically, yeah, it's better probably to take your own life than to let somebody else use and abuse you on the way to their own advancement. Now, the fruit of that is a lot more subtle than it sounds like. Uh, We talked about statistically that suicide rates have gone up a lot, 33% in the last decade, and especially within young people who are 18 or younger, The rate of suicide in the last two or three years has doubled, uh, which is a nightmare for, for people who have not even really become fully formed yet to decide that there's nothing left to live for. And I think it's a product of that Darwinian worldview. It's a product of people, even young people, looking around them and saying, if this whole human existence thing simply boils down to me taking advantage of everybody that I can the rest of my life, even if I can do it in a polite way, even if I can do it in a way that keeps me out of jail, if that's really what it's about, I don't want any part in it. And the hope of Jesus is the opposite of that idea. It's not taking, taking, taking. That's Darwinian. I'm going to take whatever I want from whomever I can to advance myself. Generosity says, especially generosity rooted in the gospel of Jesus, I have everything that I need already. So I'll give to you. I'll give to you in any way that I can, and I won't keep a receipt on that giving. I will not ever think to myself, this person owes me a favor, or I don't have to feel guilty about asking for help from this person because I already helped them once before. I think that's where generosity becomes a gospel issue. Is oftentimes in our lives we we do want to be giving, but we give as a means to an end. In the same way that hospitality can be a means to an end. We can invite a person over for dinner, welcome them around our table, attempt to share the gospel with them, but the whole weight of that conversation kind of hinges on whether or not we get them to say you're right, Jesus is real, and I want to know him for the rest of my life, or not. And if we ever fail to have that part of the conversation, even if dinner went great, and we were able to encourage somebody, and they loved our family, and they want to be a part of our life moving forward, all of which I think are wins in God's kingdom, we come away feeling defeated. We are tempted to do the same thing with our generosity, right? We show up downtown, we have jackets, we're going to give jackets to the homeless, but we all are kind of sneakily hoping we can tell somebody about Jesus Christ, his life, his death, his resurrection. Now, I'm not saying We shouldn't ever try to do that, but if that's our only metric, if we would say if we failed to do that or if we do it well but nobody responds, then the day was a failure, I don't think that's the case. I think there are two wins on the table and two losses on the table, and I think one win is whether we actually take care of people and give without getting, and the other win is whether we then explain to those who would like to know what motivates us to do that. But those things are separate from each other, and we could never give jackets out and still have great gospel conversations, and that would be wonderful for us to do. And we can also give jackets out and not choose not to force the gospel onto a person who's made it clear that they don't want to hear about it, and I think we're still able to help them. And by considering the nature of the conversation, by considering the way that we come across our tone, things of that nature, I think we have the opportunity to be a lot more generous. We also talked about how Many people who need generosity, because each of these methods builds a bridge to a different category of person. Hospitality tends to build a bridge to a person who wants nothing to do with the Church because they've never been around and they just have heard about it. Generosity builds a bridge to a person who's probably been in the Church but has experienced the Church be very capitalistic with the Gospel, wanting to always be receiving as much as it's giving or receiving more to make some kind of profit, whether that be by taking advantage of the weak or forcing extra-biblical or or things that are not biblical uh, standards and ideas onto people's lives. That could be an experience in purity culture. That could be an experience of manipulation or abuse by a church leader. Those kinds of people who have those very real experiences, they need to understand that the gospel comes without strings, because victims of churches know very well what it feels like to have somebody love them in public so that person can take advantage of them in private. And to that end, we have to be able to de-escalate conversations about Jesus. We have to be able to separate evangelism from expectation. We can't depend on escalation in gospel conversations to, to put pressure on a person and force them to try to make a spiritual decision. I don't think that's generous. I think it's dishonest. I don't think it's really evangelism. I don't think it's really sharing the good news by way of generosity if we're not giving the good news away for free, completely free, because Jesus does. Jesus gives it away for free. And then moving into stewardship, this is where we landed the plane, and this is where I want to spend the bulk of my time with you today, is sort of recapping and discussing what we talked about and uh, where we want to go from here. We've got about 20 minutes left to do that. We defined stewardship as cultivating creation as image bearers to the creator. And stewardship is designed to connect us to the third category of person who needs Jesus. We talked about um, to use maybe um, summary words here, hopefully these don't come across as unfair to you, But a person who's unchurched, that's who hospitality's aimed at, a person who feels that they know enough about the reputation of Christianity that they don't need to try it to find out for themselves what's right and what's wrong. So that's the role that hospitality plays. Generosity connects to people who have been de-churched. They've been in, but now they're out, and they're out by their own choice, and they're probably out in response to a negative experience that they've had. And then you have the religiously established. And I wasn't able to make this connection on Sunday, but it's typically... And I'm laughing, but it's not funny, it's ironic. It's it's the result of the behavior of people in category three, the religiously established, that leads to the dechurched becoming dechurched and leads to the unchurched staying unchurched. It's people who are not actually living for Jesus, but are claiming his name and then living in a human way without the Spirit of God who encourage and, and take advantage of people who are in the church to the point that they leave. I say encourage, they put the pressure on them that causes them to want to go. And and that convince the unchurch that they don't want, they don't have anything to do with, they don't need to have anything to do with the church in general because the religiously established are so stuck on themselves, they're so proud, they're so unchrist-like. Now, on Sunday, I wanted to start by establishing that there is a category of person who's religious who needs Jesus still. And for some of us, this is offensive, it's confusing, it's hard to understand. Are we supposed to be judging other people in response to this? That Some of the feedback that I got was that maybe it was a little hard to know what to do with this idea, but for the sake of clarity, I don't want to skip over the fact that we did start in John chapter 3. We worked through verse 6 of John 3, where Jesus interacts with Nicodemus, and I tried to establish that Nicodemus is a religious man in his culture. He's faithful to his gathering. He does a lot of the right stuff, and Jesus never says that those right things are wrong, Jesus simply says, there's more. I'm calling you to more. Then we dug into Luke chapter 11, where Jesus speaks to a group of Pharisees in general. He's at another dinner party with Pharisees. This is like the third time we've seen him do this in three weeks. And at the dinner party, he indicts the Pharisees for being dirty on the inside, clean on the outside. He compares them to dirty dishes in that way. He also says, you're like unmarked graves. People walk over the graves without knowing there's dead bodies on the inside. And so I try to use that as an example of why Jesus has beef with Nicodemus in John 3, because John 3, in its context, it's hard to know why Jesus is coming out against Nicodemus so strongly. Jesus has has barely started his ministry in John 3. He's only done one miracle. He doesn't have a really big reputation. Nicodemus seems to come to him relatively open-minded, but the things that Nicodemus represents are significant enough, they are bad enough, that Jesus is comfortable confronting Nicodemus and saying to him... You have to start your life all over. You have to be born again spiritually. And I believe that Jesus does that based on the hyper-religious culture of the Pharisees. So yes, Nicodemus is guilty alone, but he also finds himself aligned with a subculture of people who think that they're right. And I just find a lot of connections between that and my modern experience in Alaska, in Anchorage, in America, in the West in general, when it comes to Christianity. I think tribalism is rampant. Um, I'll just give you an off the cuff example today, and some of you may disagree with me on this. That's totally fine, but my perspective is that it's absolutely evidence of the point that i'm I'm hoping to make with you here. Um, there's an organization nationally that is known for being staunchly baptistic, so not just Southern Baptist as a con- as a convention, but Baptist denominationally like some of the Baptist distinctives, baptism by immersion, post conversion um elders, high view of the Bible, um, sort, of a, sort of a Zwinglian, if you're familiar with the, the Reformation, sort of a um, figurative view of the two sacraments uh, that they would call ordinances. Anyway, there's a national-level organization based in Florida that has picked some fights within some conservative Christian circles and kind of stood their ground on some stuff and become known for uh, really staunch, hard positions, theological—I'm not saying that I think that they're necessarily always wrong— Uh, But there's an abrasiveness that they've embraced. They're okay with it. Anyway, um, they have a guy on their team who this last week, I think it was yesterday or two days ago at the time of this recording, he announced that he was stepping down from his role at the organization. He was leaving his church that he was a part of because he had had one small change of perspective theologically. And his change of perspective was that baptism by immersion, post-conversion was still good and right, but that it was okay To baptize babies, infants, what we would call pedo baptism, uh, if those babies are children of believers. And so he would see that as an extension of the covenant by way of some of the examples in the book of Acts, where the Apostle Paul and other people baptize households. Paul says, The blessing is for you and your children both. I get it. I'm familiar with covenant theology. I went to a Reformed, or you might think of it as a Calvinist uh, seminary. I'm not deeply in that camp in a way where I need to proselytize anybody, but I, you know, you bump up against Presbyterians in, the, in that realm of, of Baptist thought, and so this guy has become a Presbyterian. He has left his Baptist church, left his Baptist ministry, and become a Presbyterian. Uh, and he's done that, I believe, because of one small, little external change in his view and his practice. And I just think we have to be really, really careful that our tribalism does not cause greater division among us. I think it's okay to disagree with other people. You might think that infant baptism is a primary issue. I would say it is not a primary issue in the grand scheme of things. I believe that a person who is a believer in Jesus Christ has the freedom and grace from God to take all the time they need to figure out what they think about baptism. There's a reason that people have disagreed about this for hundreds of years. I have my perspective. I believe the Bible makes it relatively plain, but obviously not everybody does. I don't think every single person who believes in infant baptism has never read the whole Bible and is ignorant and biblically illiterate at all. I would never say that. So I just that's a modern example of a way that we can become really tribal. We can become really division-oriented. We can become uh, so concerned about policing each other and policing our own behavior or committed to a religious standard that really isn't laid out in the Bible. The Bible doesn't ever acknowledge the Baptists or the Presbyterians or the Lutherans or anything like that. It calls upon people to follow Jesus and to do that as much as it can globally, catholically, with the with a lower c, lowercase c Catholic, like globally. Um, and I know that's an aspirational thing that maybe we can't get at, but I think one of the works of our enemy, and this is a tangent, so I'll wrap it up here and move on, But one of the works of our enemy where he's been really successful is he's caused the church to continue to shatter and divide and shatter and divide and shatter and divide uh, and to really um, be more willing to be known for what it's against than what it's for. So when I see Jesus interact with the Pharisees and I see him interact with um, Nicodemus specifically, I see him cultivating life in those guys. I think for you and I, at first glance, it feels like it's only an indictment, it's only uh, condemnation from Jesus Jesus says, if you continue to read in John 3, uh, 17, that he didn't come to condemn the world. He actually isn't here to only tell people where they're wrong, but part of the conversation about getting right includes that things could be better, that things are not great today. And so that was the point that I wanted to make on Sunday as we dealt with stewardship. I wanted to try to teach our church members, our congregation, and, and even you, the listener, that the method to connect with a person who's deeply religious is going to be stewardship of them. These are people who have tried to live according to God's will externally. We want to see them made alive internally. We want to see them actually meet the Jesus they've been trying so hard to impress from a distance. I think that's what Jesus wants for Nicodemus. And so how do we do that? What's the method? It's cultivating humanity in another person. And I think this is maybe where a little bit of the resistance that I got from the congregation is helpful to me. I don't know that I emphasized this the way that I wanted to, so if you're listening now, maybe this can be a clarifying point for you. People who are deeply religious, we don't find that out by policing them. We don't find that out by just every setting we're in, Bible study, life group, you know, Sunday morning, constantly evaluating and analyzing, are these people real Christians, or are they not? A person who's deeply religious and doesn't know Jesus is going to live in a very obviously, a very divergent way from the way of a person who's following Christ personally. And that's going to be rooted in their presuppositions, what they believe about themselves. What I mean is their worldview. Uh, For a religious person, one of their deepest fears is that their own humanity will emerge, will break the surface of their life, and people will see them weak, people will see them fail, people will see them make mistakes and sin and rebel against God and not have it all together and not be cleaned up and not be perfect and stable and wonderful and happy all the time. And so what we get to do as people who know Jesus is we get to deescalate a situation when we're near to a religious person, if we've built a relationship with them, and they begin to panic because their insufficiencies, their imperfections, their weaknesses are showing, we get to show them how to get to Jesus. We get to say, look, Christ is enough. The secret version of you, the part of you that you don't want anybody to know about, that's the part that God wants The sinful part of you is the part that God wants to save, and not just to clean it up so he can like it later. He likes it now. He loves you now. That's why he wants to save you. The order is important there. I think that if we misunderstand Jesus' perspective on the Pharisees and Nicodemus to be that he just came to attack them, and then to kind of drop the mic and walk away and let them deal with the consequences, that is not at all our example. Our example is is Jesus being willing to extend mercy to people who are hostile to him because of their religion. That's what we're dealing with. People who are deeply religious spend most of their time living very carefully, very formulated lifestyles, and they try to limit their exposure to people who are different from them. They don't want to be around people who they disagree with on social or political issues, and this is true for social conservatives and social liberals. The way that we cultivate humanity in the lives of the religious is by showing them, demonstrating to them how Jesus' way is not just different but better than whatever they have going on. So when you get close to a person who's deeply religious, and you find out they're still really angry, they're still really bitter, they're still really afraid, they haven't been, their inner person has not been born again, to use Jesus' words, speaking to Nicodemus in John 3, the way that we extend the gospel into their life is we appeal to what Jesus can do for them that they can't do for themselves. We say to them, I'm not telling you you haven't tried hard, I'm not saying to you you don't want to be right, I'm not saying to you You're in open, full rebellion against God, and you've given God the middle finger, and, and not at all. What I'm saying to you is, Jesus is offering you something you can't offer to yourself, that I can't even offer to you. And I'm inviting you, I'm calling you to repent of the whole life that you've lived, just like Jesus calls Nicodemus to repent, and to find your full identity, your newness of life in Christ alone. That's what we want for people who are deeply religious. Um, If I can start to land the plane here just to get ready to kind of sign off for today's episode, we've got about five minutes, give or take. I want to read from an email that I received this week. I found this to be very, very helpful. Um, Just a a church member who had some concerns coming off of uh, the sermon on Sunday and had some great questions about uh, my intentions and, and wanted to clarify some stuff. And so I'm going to just read through a little bit of this, um, and the person themselves will remain anonymous, no problem there, Um, but I think you, the listener, will find this to be beneficial. So um, here's what the writer wrote in. They said, after the message on Sunday, I felt really confused, as if I must have missed something from the sermon. The overall takeaway that I was left with felt like, quote, you should question others' hearts and intentions and take it upon yourself to call them out, end quote, which honestly surprised me. Now, my response to that was, first, an apology. I apologize if that's the way that I communicated at all. Uh, I I have no doubt that oftentimes when I preach, my intentions do not come across. I'm still working on my communication. I think I have a long way to go. Uh, No way. Uh, But my response to that concern is this, that my primary hope was to equip the church to try to navigate how we share Jesus with people who are devoutly religious but who are not yet born again. And the application is not meant to be get out there and start analyzing other people, but instead, here's what to do when you actually encounter somebody who is blatantly, obviously not following Jesus, yet claims to be. Um, I went on to say it's very possible that you may not encounter many people like that, and that may be true for you, listener, as well. Uh, But for me personally, I find that I speak to somebody who falls into that camp about every other day in one setting or another. I, I interact with these people online often. I see them represented in both conservative and liberal media, uh, people who say that they speak for the church or speak for Christ, but seem to not have a born-again sense of knowing Christ personally, but instead have kind of signed up for a religion and are just doing their best to earn merit badges. Um, And then I went on to say my response, and I don't have time to get into this today, but we'll probably do a podcast episode on this uh, in the next couple of months. Uh, I may have even mentioned it on a previous episode. That rings a bell right now, but I'm not sure. Um, The Four False American Gospels. Uh, And I would say that those four false gospels probably make up over 50% of what professing quote-unquote Christians actually believe in the West. Um, two of them are very close to, I think, the real biblical gospel. Two of them are far from it, um, and, and I didn't go into detail in my response, so I won't hear either, but I think that it, we do need to understand that uh, we can be gracious and kind, charitable, open, welcoming to people who are wrong. We don't need them to know only the right gospel exactly before we can let them in, but we're also not going to stop exposing them to the words and works of Jesus over and over and over again, regardless of if they think that they are saved or not. I believe firmly that even people who are born again still need to hear the grace and mercy of Jesus every single time we gather. I try as hard as I can as a preacher to tie my sermons into the life and work of Christ every week, Uh, and that's not at all to pat myself on the back, but I do it because I believe this so wholeheartedly. I just want to demonstrate that I'm not making this up as a response, but I'm trying to say this is a position that I've worked from many, many times. Um, you, as the listener, may find it helpful if I can quickly quote four brief passages of Scripture for you that I rely on to help me know what to do in response to people who are practicing or speaking about false religion or even other other kinds of Gospels, people who would say, well, this is the real Gospel. Um, first, Galatians one nine, probably the best and most helpful verse in this category, The Apostle Paul says to the church in Galatia, as we've said before, so now I say to you again. So Paul's saying, I've said this more than once. This is common knowledge among you. Here it is. Here's the saying. If anyone is preaching to you a gospel that is contrary, that goes against the one that you received from us, may that person be cursed, which is heavy language in Greek and in that worldview that Paul has. That's a big, big deal. Uh, Paul is, if it's unclear to you who's listening, he is saying, I've said this many times to you, I'm saying it to you now again in writing so that I'm clear. If a person comes and the gospel that they believe and that they are preaching to you to try to lead you down that road is contrary, is opposed to the gospel of grace of Jesus, then a curse be on that person. Strong language, but it shows you how seriously Paul takes the gospel and how seriously we should take the gospel in our churches as well. In Titus chapter 3, verses 9 through 11, Paul says, Avoid foolish controversies, avoid genealogies, avoid dissensions, and avoid quarrels about the law. All four of those are false gospels, for they are unprofitable and they are worthless. As for a person who stirs up division, after warning him once and then twice, have nothing more to do with him, knowing that such a person is warped and sinful. He is self-condemned. Romans chapter 16, verses 17 and 18 are similar to Titus 3. Paul says, I appeal to you, brothers, to watch out for those who cause divisions and who create obstacles that are contrary to the doctrine that you've been taught. Again, these are gospels that go against the gospel of Jesus. Avoid them. For such persons do not serve our Lord Christ, but they serve their own appetites, and by smooth talk and flattery, they deceive the hearts of the naive. That's religion. Religion deceives the hearts of the naive. How many of us have known a person who is innocent and kind and wants to do right and gets wrapped up in some backwards church, or even a cult, potentially. I've known several people who've gotten roped into cults because they want so badly to make contact with the divine, they don't know how to do it by way of Jesus, the only bridge to God, and so they get pulled into a religious system. It can happen at a First Baptist church, it can happen at a compound in the woods in western Oregon, it doesn't matter, when people decide that they're going to work their way to God, they are practicing empty religion. And then finally in 2 John 1, 9 through 9-10, John's writing to the church, the diaspora, and he says, Everybody who goes on ahead and does not abide in the teaching of Christ does not actually have God, but whoever abides in the teaching has both the Father and the Son. If anyone comes to you and does not bring this teaching, do not receive him into your house or give him any greeting. In other words, people who do not abide in the teaching of Christ, people who found their meaning, their value, their religious system outside of Jesus, do not actually have God. And therefore, they need him. So, what do we do? We evangelize. We make contact with them, and we do that by cultivating life, by letting them know they don't have to be perfect. They cannot earn their way to God. Romans 1 nobody can manufacture their own righteousness. It has to come from God by way of Christ through his grace, his mercy to you, and your faith in that mercy to him. So, if I can just be uh, maybe brief here at the conclusion, what I want to encourage you, the listener, to do is to consider the people in your life here's a step you can take. Do you have association with people who need to see hospitality at work? People who are outside of the church, maybe you have a masseuse or a hairdresser or somebody who works at your favorite coffee shop or restaurant or a teacher in your child's life or a guy who always works on your minivan and does really good work, but is there somebody who's never actually taken Christianity seriously? Would you be willing... You trust God enough to open your domestic rhythms and invite that person to go fishing, to go hunting, to go on a hike, to come and have dinner, to join you at the movies, to have a cup of coffee with you once in a while, and not have an agenda, but simply share your life in the interest of demonstrating what Jesus has done for you. If Christ has made us new, then we share new life simply by living around the people that we're near. And then, if we're faithful, we will share the gospel explicitly. We will want to, because it's not obligatory, it's not burdensome, it's the path to life. Maybe for you that's not the case. Maybe there's somebody in your life who's been in the church before. They've been burned by the church. Maybe they got pregnant before they were married and the church kicked them out. Maybe they got a tattoo and the church kicked them out. Maybe they practiced a homosexual lifestyle and the church kicked them out. I don't know. Something happened. They got burned. They're done with it. They've decided, no way. But they've let you come around their life. You've built a friendship. You've built a relationship. Is there a way you can demonstrate generosity without strings attached Can you make an investment in the future of another person without expectations that they have to pay you back? And when the time comes, can you appeal to the mercy God has given you as the source and motivation for the mercy that you're showing to them? Or are you, like me, a person who grew up in a very religious setting and maybe you still have relationships with people who need to be stewarded well, who've been taught from a pulpit by angry people that God is angry and they should be angry and all of Christianity is a culture war? and they're deeply religious, but they're scared to death because they can never earn their own salvation, but they try as hard as they can. They're frustrated. They're negative. They're short-tempered. They're driven by fear. They're anxious. They're depressed. I don't know. None of those things alone are a symptom of a person who lives without Christ, but they can be demonstrators to us, indicators to us, that a person doesn't actually know the Jesus that they've claimed to, to meet, and maybe we can introduce them to that Jesus by way of cultivating life for them. Sit down and read the Bible with a person like that. Say to them, hey, would you just read the first two chapters of the book of John with me. Let's just go through it together. Let's just hear from Jesus what he says is important. Get him to John 3. Let him hear how Jesus speaks to Nicodemus. Say to them, who is Jesus to you? Is he a rabbi? Is he a teacher? Or is he God himself? And does he have the authority to forgive sin? And if he does, has he forgiven yours? Do you really believe that once and for all? That could be a life-changing conversation. Church, I want to let you know that coming up on the podcast next week, I'm going to sit down with Pastor Gary Motes, who is the Uh, senior pastor of the First Baptist Church in Anchorage. We've been uh, meeting as a church in their building, using their space a little over a year now. Uh, Longer than that if you count the summer of 2020, but those were such odd and strange circumstances that I don't think they necessarily don't count, but they're not indicative of what we're doing right now. As far as meeting at 915, having overlap with our kids' classes, using their space throughout the week, that's been a little over a year, I think a year and a couple weeks. And so Um, I'm going to hear from Pastor Gary on church revitalization. We're going to have a conversation about what do you do when a church has gotten down to 50 people? What do you do when those people maybe are not prepared to embrace change? They know they want to be different, but the processes of change and and difference are too painful to embrace on their own. How do you lead people like that? How do you love them along the way? Uh, Pastor Gary's done that process at a couple of churches, and he's here at FBC Anchorage working on that now. He's also working Uh, with me on some potential investment in some younger folks in our state, being able to help them be equipped to do revitalization as well, because if you've lived in Alaska very long, you know that we have a lot of old churches, and most of them aren't doing too well. So we want to find a way to reach out to those churches and help them, maybe provide them with some leadership that can be loving and caring, but still lead them into some more modern, relevant practices that might show uh, their community that they have some value again. If you have questions for Pastor Gary, or if you want to push back on anything that I've said today, Maybe you have general questions for the podcast for our next Q&A episode. Uh, we receive four or five of those from you, the listeners, uh, in response to our last call for questions. So I'll ask again. Would love to hear anything you want to know, Bible, personal life, church, culture, anything. You let us know and we'll do our best to respond in time. Uh, if you'll use the subject line podcast questions, that'll help us get a hold of your questions easier. It helps me uh, sort of push them all together into one document when the time comes to work through those Q&A episodes. Hey, I appreciate you joining me today. Hopefully this wasn't too much review and redundancy for you. God willing, uh, you'll take a step this week, maybe to reach out to somebody by way of hospitality, generosity, or stewardship, and show them that God's kingdom can be a home for them as well. Uh, We love you, church. That's why we do this podcast. We are here for you, and we hope that this has been an encouragement. I'll see you soon.